Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, March 8th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, So the 1.9 trillion uh, coronavirus relief America Needs to be Saved Act passed the Senate, is going back to the House for reconciliation purposes, and will, in theory, be signed into law, assuming that something uh, disastrous to Joe Biden's hopes uh, does not happen in the House uh, over the next four or five days, should be signed into law next week. It is the second largest uh, act of... um, uh, budget uh, budget act in American history, I think, next to last year's, you know, uh, Hail Mary coronavirus salvation package. And uh, it's interesting because it's interesting in 10,000 ways, because I think the ultimate message is, you know, elections have consequences, right? Well, so in 1996, after an election, when Bill Clinton lost the House and Senate, um, to Republicans in the biggest uh, midterm uh, switch in American history, really the most dramatic, uh, in his first, in his second State of the Union, uh, after the, uh, when he was gearing up to run uh, for re-election, he issued the famous statement in the State of the Union that the era of big government is over. He didn't really mean it. Of course, it wasn't really over if you take big government simply to be like the heavy hand of Washington or whatever, because... In different ways, the era of the government has remained with us. Government's gotten bigger. Uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, the security state got larger. Uh, we created a new cabinet department, stuff like that. And then, of course, Obama came along uh, and uh, created Obamacare uh, with the assent of the House and Senate, spent $2.5 trillion in 14 months uh, in a, a spending spree that likes of which no one had ever seen. And then, of course, Donald Trump came in and had no appetite for cutting anything but regulations. <clears throat> so the big big government never really went anywhere. But this is what Clinton was saying was not going to happen anymore is now happening, which is an expansion of government spending and a doubling down on the notion that uh, the Washington should be providing direct benefits, goods, and services to the electorate and to the American people uh, through um, whatever modalities uh, it it has. Uh, We could talk about some of the specifics here, but I think that's the, the biggest picture question here is, the the uh, we've just, we're spending two trillion dollars above the four trillion dollars we have already spent to try to make sure that the economy doesn't didn't you know crater and fall into the sea uh, because of the uh, disaster of of the pandemic um, and the logic of a lot of what is in this bill does not is triggered by the pandemic, including like the biggest, most important elements like the expansion essentially of, of child welfare, federal child welfare. They're connected because everybody, because people are suffering, but they are not connected in the sense that they do not directly are not directly about dealing with the virus itself, right? It's, there's a lot of expansion of virus stuff, Monies, programming, this, that, the other thing, but there's, but there's a lot of democratic, liberal, leftist, public policy, think tank, wish list stuff that is being done in in this bill to go big and go long, and and uh, and so that's that's really where where we are, I think. Anybody? Well, we were talking about this over the weekend briefly, and or just before the show, actually. There's so little that. I mean, I follow this stuff on a day-to-day basis. It's the job, and there's so little that I actually know that's in this bill, unless you stuck around for the 10-hour reading of it in the Senate, which, you know, I had a few other things to do. Um, You know, there's always something new that comes down the transom that I'm like, that's in this? 
And the latest I thought, I'm not sure who sent it my way, I think it might have been Abe, was this um, pensions bailout, um, which is the sort of thing that Republicans probably should have spent the better part of the last three weeks talking about. It essentially uses taxpayer dollars to bail out private pension plans, which has never happened before. Um, And it seems like a pretty grotesque misuse of uh, the Treasury, from my perspective, Uh, it strikes me as just sort of a bribe, but nobody, we don't really know much about this. I didn't know much about this. There was the other one. I'm forgetting what that was, which was, what was the other thing that was absolutely horrific about this? I even wrote about it for the blog. I forget. Oh, it was about the federal government workers getting a, getting a payoff. The bribe for federal workers that essentially creates a conspiracy of interests to keep schools closed because they get money if their schools are closed, um, but they don't get it if the schools aren't closed. So everybody in the in the Washington D.C. area has an incentive to not, keep the don't send closed. your kids to school and keep the schools closed, and it's all part of this COVID relief bill. So it doesn't really seem like a COVID relief bill; it's more like a COVID perpetuation bill. Well, there's yeah, there, exactly. There's a kind of there's it, there are two things going on. One is the kind of spackling over of failed liberal programs that now they have a lot of money to throw at again, like the pension stuff. And then there's this there's a weird kind of bribery going on here with with taxpayer money because it's not just that the federal workers will get payoffs. They're talking about increasing uh, massively increasing the amount of money that's given to parents per child in a way that is also kind of strikes those of us who've been in lockdown for a year with our kids not able to go to school is kind of a bribe. It's like, well, you know, we couldn't educate your kids, but here's a big check like for, for all of your trouble over the last year. And although they're all marked as temporary, we all know from past experience and policymaking that these will all be uh, difficult to, to loosen once they're in place and once people have cashed those checks. And that's, I say that as someone with kids. Like, I still think it's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's putting us right, you know, back at the doorstep doorstep of of you know old child welfare policies that incentivize um you know uh having kids for checks uh regardless of circumstance um and it's you know it's like if i was thinking if, if, if ezra klein thinks there's no dignity in work well you know he's in luck because a lot fewer people are going to be working uh, I mean, as a result a- of all these goodies you get without working you guys saw somebody I mean- come up with the statement that this is essentially the biggest experiment in Keynesian stimulus in the history of the planet. And we're really going to see that multiplier effect, you know, really kick in this time because all the other times it just wasn't big enough. And my money's on, this isn't big enough because well, the Keynesian so, multiplier effect right. always disappoints there's the, a, you know, the, the faithful adherence. There's another sort of scary aspect to this, which is that there is not a, a right wing in place. There's not a conservative movement actively in place now that is um, vocally against sort of getting things from the government, right? That's that's no longer considered a horrible thing. Well, look, the logic of the of the child welfare, the so essentially the reintroduction of what was called aid to families with dependent children, um, which is what was effectively ended by the welfare reform of 1996, there is a certain, at least ideological logic to it, which is that uh, in 2017, the uh, as part of a conservative wish list tax bill, when Trump and the Republicans had control of the the three, you know, the legislative and executive branches, there was an expansion of the uh, child tax credit. Or the child, you know, sort of uh, the child tax deduction, um, and there was one. There's one interesting wrinkle in the expansion of the child tax deduction, which is that it privileges people who pay taxes because it's a deduction, and forty some odd percent of people in the United States or households or something do not pay federal taxes because of tax cutting that was disproportionately favorable to people in the lower quintiles. That was something that you never really heard about the George W. Bush tax cuts, but was the secret of them is that they practically zeroed out federal uh, income taxes. They didn't zero out payroll taxes, but many people ceased paying 
income taxes and therefore a deduction is of no use to them. The only thing that is of use to them, if what you're trying to do is get money to them, is a tax credit. And the danger of the tax credit is precisely that the federal government is sending people checks from the federal treasury as an ongoing matter for their life support. We do that. We do that with old age and disability, right? That's the social security system. That's old age and disability subventions. But at least social security at least has the fiction, or maybe it's two or three years and not much more, that people have paid into the system their entire lives and are now taking it out. A a tax credit system is designed with, I think, good intention to say, look, if what we need to do is provide some help to families when, you know, they have small children uh, and the people who need the most help are actually people who are the poorest, then we have created in the tax deduction system a problem, which is that it's really good for people who are in the top three quintiles and increasingly not good and to zero good for people in the lower quintiles. And so that's part of the logic here that we as conservatives can't simply dismiss, which is if what you want to do is help people with children, particularly if you, the other way of looking at it is you want people to go to work. Because despite what Ezra Klein thinks, work provides dignity, it provides self-respect, it's the path to making more money over a lifetime, to learning habits and behaviors that make it possible for you to to be a successful person and then be a role model to your children about how to get through life and improve your circumstances and all of that, right? But those people may have three or four children. How are they going to go to work? Who's going to take care of their kids? So you can say that the virtue of a child tax credit is that it will provide the means by which people can pay for child care so that they can go out and work because otherwise they either have to rely on relatives who may be themselves overtaxed or overburdened or something like that. However, we do have this terrible history, the unintended consequence of the aid for families with dependent children system that was created where there is inarguable rafts of data that the illegitimacy problem in the United States was 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 wildly exacerbated. The the having children out of wedlock was wildly exacerbated by the fact that uh, irrespective of your marital circumstance and all of that, you got money per child so that if you are a very short-term thinker and you don't think about the future and the fact that children, no matter how much money you get from the federal government, it's not going to be enough to support your kids, uh, you'll do it anyway because you're 19 years old and what do you know And someone says, you know, you can get another $4,000 if you, you know, if you have another kid and that's like, wow, $4,000, I can really use that. How quickly is that money used up when you're like you have to buy clothes and you have to buy a car seat or, you know, whatever, however you want to slice it. Um, and that's the danger, right? I mean, that's a real, that's a, that's a classic moral hazard that is being introduced here that because we're so mean and we conservatives are so awful and we think that work provides dignity and that the federal government and the government should not be the supporter of individuals, but rather that individuals should be the supporters of government uh, because we are a self-governing society and that we pay in to get services that we all share, not that, you know, individual people get checks from the government and others don't. Um, This is a very worrisome thing. Yeah, I talk about this all the time, but in 1968, the White House Office of Economic Opportunity launched a series of pilot programs targeting uh, mostly populations in New Jersey, so it's relevant to me, um, to test the negative income tax, which is an equivalent to a UBI. UBI advocates argue against it. They say UBI it's not really... Is the uni- Wait, you got to explain. UBI is the universal basic income. It's the idea that the federal government sends every person like $10,000 a year. Regard- everyone in the country gets a check from the federal government 
to create a floor. They don't specify a number. They would never well, specify I'm a just, number. I'm just throwing it out anyway. Right, sure. So yeah, negative income taxes, it's, it's what it sounds like essentially is graduated to give you tax relief um, based on your income level and it gives you money based on your income. Um, and they tested it out in New Jersey and Stanford Research Institute had this retroactive study on it, which found that that quote, the, uh, uh, that the study read that they uh, hypothesized that the availability of the income guarantee to some families reduced the pressure on the breadwinner to remain within the family, while the benefit reduction rate also reduced the value of the family, keeping a wage earner in the unit. So it, the pressure to disaggregate the nuclear family by the negative income tax was most certainly exacerbated, and this study pretty much demonstrates it. Well, right. and well I, I yeah. think it's also, I, it's also worth adding that that politically, the messaging for this, for anyone who, who raises the issues that we're raising right now, John's right, horrible, mean conservatives who want children to, to wallow in poverty, and how dare you call it dignified when you have to work at a McDonald's. I'm sorry, but a lot of us spent our youth working crappy minimum wage jobs. I sure did. You don't stay there. And actually, if you look at the data for how people move up and down income scales, that's true for most people who work the minimum wage. They, they rarely have a career with a minimum wage job. So that's one point. But we should recall that Previ- the previous bill um, increased the food stamp program, um, I think, up to 15 percent. And uh, this one is also uh, expanding and con- continuing to do the rent and utility breaks. You know, the, the previous COVID relief package addressed a lot of those concerns. This one is expanding some of those. So so worrying about how much money we're, we're increasing with this new bill, there's a strange kind of amnesia about talking about the past bill. And we know from from looking very closely at what school districts are doing that a lot of the money for that hasn't even been spent. So I do think that that, that is the messaging that Republicans in particular need to be uh, out in front of, right? Like, don't get called, you know, you're not trying to make children starve by questioning the amount of money that we're throwing at people right now. Well, look, there are macroeconomic issues here that as, as Noah, as Noah, laid out by saying, you know, uh, this is a real test of Keynesian top-down, you know, throwing money at things, you know, in order to create from, you know, whatever. Uh, but there, there are all kinds of things that are going to be tested here. <clears throat> and the thing that you have to understand about the test is that uh, because of negative polarization, because of the radicalization of the academy, because of all of this, uh, there's going to be a lot of crap peddled about how this works and how it's all fantastic. We already know how it's going to work, which is this bill is going to come out. They're spending $2 trillion at a time when there is reason to believe that I think next week we're going to hear about the first quarter growth numbers in GDP and that it's going to be like 8% or something like that. Uh, uh, our Goldman Sachs is predicting seven and a half percent. Um, and that, that will only obviously from a terrible base because 2021 was a, was a horror show, but that, but that we are coming into a recovery. There's going to be a roaring recovery, uh, as the virus is, you know, uh, combated and everybody comes out from their holes and all of that. And they're going to say that this bill did that. And it won't. It won't have done it. But uh, the the messaging of the left and their acolytes everywhere is going to be very powerful. Abe, uh, well, the other side of this is that so then for um, to weigh the results of things like a return to uh, bad old welfare policies. those take their toll kind of generationally, right? So we, we won't see the effects of those uh, until the long term, at which point there will have been so much time and so many other intervening circumstances that we won't, that, that those arguing in favor of, of these policies can obfuscate and say, well, you, you can't blame it on, uh, on just on the, on the $300 per kid uh, uh, tax credit. Right. Although, you know, again, um, one virtue of having negative or whatever you want to call it, of having something this big and this unambiguous uh, tossed into a country that is so ideologically divided uh, in the way that it is divided is that uh, there is a ready market. There, There are tens of millions of people who are not 
who are already skeptical about everything they hear. And, uh, and so it's not like there's going to be like a steamroller effect. It's going to be, oh my God, this is so fantastic. They'll all say it's fantastic. They'll all tell each other it's all fantastic. But there, there, there is a ready audience to hear that it's not, particularly if it really isn't. And, and, uh, then there are also real world things that are going to happen. We don't know that may happen that, that are going to sting and that will be invalidating. Like the one thing that liberal economists and liberal people are worried about, which is a return of inflation for the first time in 40 years. And I, I'm going to say you guys are too young. Uh, I'm sick. I'm about to be 60. Abe's about to be 50. You guys are all too young to know what it was like to live during a period of hyperinflation. That's the great virtue of the last two generations. Um, It's crazy. Uh, You know, you go to a store and the thing that you paid 75 cents for one week, you're paying $1.25 the next week. And it's not like that's because there was a mere interruption in supply. That's because... Everything goes up, everything gets passed down, everything, you know, and then your gas prices go up five cents a week every week, and this goes up and that goes up, and suddenly everybody's purchasing power is cut in half, and it is one of the freakiest and most disturbing things that can happen to a society and an economy. If that happens, uh, this is all on them. I mean, I, I don't want it to happen. It's terrible. Like, you know, I'm not saying, oh, you'll see, and it's terrible, and you're they're going to hate you. But, I mean, it's a very real prospect here. We are talking about shoving $2 trillion of public money down the gullet of a country that is already might be in explosive economic growth as it is. And that's yeah, a you're very... talking about Steve Ratner's argument over the weekend, and he published this opinion piece in the New York Times. Um, one of these very few, unfortunately, is a paucity of liberal economists who are being honest about this thing, but he's one of them and he's a smart guy and a nice guy um, who said, you know, estimates suggest that Americans are sitting on $1.6 trillion of uh, savings over the course of this last year and demand is very pent up and we're beginning to see it expressed. And then you're talking about another $1.9 trillion just trickling into the economy over the course of a year. And that's too much demand and not enough supply. Housing starts are already shockingly low in part because construction uh, materials are really expensive now. Um, And yeah, you could start to see some real overheating pretty quick. And inflation has, you know, I'm terrified of inflation for a variety of reasons. I didn't live through it, but I've read enough about it in part to, because I'm so scared of it. And one of the things that I don't think we can really underestimate in this environment is that you have hyperinflation has a weird psychological effect on you when, when the money in your wallet doesn't, doesn't have the same worth that it did last week, you begin to lose a lot of faith in a lot of institutions and, and can resolve to adopt some pretty radical views. And we are in a current position in human history in which radical views have a, have a way of catching fire very quickly in an unregulated market without any gatekeepers and institutions that normally filter information into into the uh, ecosystem um, with some you know moderation over it with some capacity to to dictate what's real and what's not we don't have that anymore right so in an environment in which you have this uh, a scary condition in which your money doesn't really have the same worth that it had and also you there's this ecosystem of conspiratorial thinking which has its grips on a lot of otherwise rational people i i mean the, our shared version of reality could go south really quickly Right. And uh, we're talking here, of course, about what uh, America is going to be like uh, after Corona is has has uh, uh, when we're now in a position where we can look beyond the uh, the pandemic and what it's done to us. That's why you want to go to your Apple podcasts or Google podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you want to go and download Dan Senor's podcast post Corona the most interesting conversation, weekly conversation you will ever hear about the question of what America is going to be like uh, over the next four years as we emerge from this uh, horrible period. And his latest podcast, which is incredibly instructive, it's the second one he's done with Yonatan Adiri, an Israeli health entrepreneur, 
and and somebody who uh, a couple of months ago and now this week walked and walks Dan through how Israel became vaccination nation, what it was about Israeli society and the Israeli approach both to fighting uh, the virus and adopting a system of distribution of the vaccines that uh, Bibi Netanyahu and the government were foresighted enough to procure early in sufficient uh, numbers to uh, easily, over the space of a couple of months, vaccinate the entire population of 9 million people. Uh, It's a fascinating conversation that goes to social structure, trust in social institutions, uh, and uh, many of the issues that we have here that Israel has had to battle and how it's done so in a, in a manner far more efficient and uh, practical um, uh, than we have and certainly than most countries in the world have and w- what what the lessons are from that. So please, do me a favor, do yourself a favor, go subscribe to Dan Sinor's Post-Corona so you can listen to this conversation with Yonatan Adiri, and you can go back and listen to others with me, with Raihan Salam, with Neil Ferguson, with uh, Billy Bean, with uh, a lot of people uh, who have a lot to say about the Constitution of the United States after this uh, unprecedented and unthinkable period uh, is behind us. So that's post-corona with with Dan Senor. Uh, let's talk politically about what happened here um, and how there was a, a hiccup on Saturday in the in the uh, Friday and Saturday in the good working order of getting this bill passed in the Senate when the two most conservative members of the Senate, uh, Democratic members of the Senate, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, decided that they were going to um, uh, express their power uh, by uh, Manchin sort of slowing stuff down in relation to the uh, unemployment benefits and cinema doing this very uh, public performative uh, turn, uh, kind of scamp, you know, sauntering up to the podium uh, with her backpack on and her mask, uh, turning a big thumbs down to uh, to the fifteen dollar minimum wage. And then turning and sauntering back up the aisle to make as public a display of her refusal to agree to a $15 federal minimum wage as was possible. As it happens, I think five other Democrats besides Manchin and Cinema voted against the minimum wage, including people you, that, that might surprise you like Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire. Uh, and I assume this is because we're talking about people who were... Uh, who are sensible and uh, not oh, wildly overly politicized, and had people in their states, small business, mem- you know, people in their states say, y- "You're killing us. You're going to kill us. You cannot do this to us." What's more, we live in a state where you don't necessarily need fifteen dollars as the minimum wage number, or you know, you're you're. I'm just not going to be able to hire people back at this number or whatever it is. Um, and so you had this fascinating thing going on, which is a lot of raging against Mansion and Cinema. Uh, from the left. And then Manchin, like, really sowing his oats. Like yesterday, saying, I may, you know, help a little bit uh, with the, maybe we need to make the filibuster harder. I don't want to get rid of the filibuster, but, you know, uh, maybe I'll do this and maybe I'll do that. It's like, I'm the most important person in the world, you know. Bow before me. Bow before my power and authority. Uh, You, you know, you heathen. which is sort of uh, uh, fun. But I was struck by one thing, which is there was this sort of like, oh, this is terrible. The $15 minimum wage is gone, all this. And then there was a, you know, I know we, we, we have problems with polls and all that, but uh, the, the, the poll that came out over the weekend, I can't remember who did it, about Biden's numbers, approval numbers on the virus and stuff like that show 98% support for his handling of the virus and the bill for Biden among Democrats. 98%. So the left is up in arms about this bill? I don't think so. I don't think anybody in the Democratic coalition is uh, this bill gets passed and he is, you know, he will have done everything that he possibly could and more to solidify his hold 
on the party by providing them with a basket of goodies, the likes of which we have never seen. And while Mansion and Cinema may remain powerful in the sense that many other desiderata may not pass their smell test and will not, they will not be able to say that it's a reckons budget bill and therefore can only be passed with 51 votes. Uh, however you want to slice it, uh, it will be Biden's party, and he will have the uh, he will have commanded the fealty, respect, and loyalty for having stuck with this gigantic, preposterous bill and getting it through. That's okay. So you're referencing the ABC News poll, and what um, the numbers that you're talking about are Joe Biden's handling of the response to coronavirus, right? But the, the bill is the part of that. Well, part that's of it, part of obviously. it. That's 98% of Democrats who support his handling of the coronavirus generally, 67% of independents, and uh, 35% of Republicans. Those are fantastic numbers for a full two-thirds support for the president's handling of coronavirus generally. Um, But there were other stuff in this polls. This might be a little bit of a digression, but you sent this to us early in the morning, and I was in bed, and I just didn't have the energy to engage in an intellectual debate at the time. Um, But here we are, so might as well. Um, This is something of a... uh, uh, and a Rorschach test, I think, because you saw these numbers and saw just despair. And I don't know if I see that. So the questions were, do you think that the following is happening too quickly, too slowly, or about the right pace? Now, loosening mask mandates, everybody thinks is happening too fast. 56% say too fast. 21% say right pace. So generally, that's people want masks. Loosening restrictions on public gatherings, 50% say that's happening too fast, too. 24% say it's about the right pace. However, when you get down to reopening businesses and reopening schools, this one you thought was really bad because it shows 33% say reopening businesses is happening too fast. 34% say it's just the right pace, 33% too slowly. Almost identical numbers in reopening grade schools. So we have a third of the country saying it's too fast, a third of the country saying it's about right, a third of the country saying it's too slowly. Now, this is complete uh, glass half empty, glass half full thing. It depends on your perspective. Because you could look at that and say, a full two thirds say this is we, we should reopen and we are reopening at the right pace or it's not happening fast enough. Or you could look at it and say, two thirds of the country say it's happening at just the right pace or it should slow down. I mean, this is a complete inkblot test. And to me, I see it and I, I see something positive. I will tell you why. I looked at that and was in despair, aside from the fact that I was in a bad mood, which I was. So I'm going to stipulate that. Um, it was the way it was framed by ABC News, which, of course, is part of how you think about this. Oh, they in the write-up, said, they didn't even mention the top lines. I had to go into right. the actual poll to find no, the top lines. They only the, talked about the partisan breakdown, which is why I went for the top lines, because I but, knew they were not telling me something I needed to know. There were various stories, and one of the stories it was, public remains concerned about speed of reopening. That was the headline on the piece, the first piece that I read. And they used the data to say pluralities or whatever are concerned that everything is moving too fast. Which is exactly why I felt like I needed to read the poll. But the poll, there are two ways of looking at it. One of which is the poll does not suggest that they are totally wrong, right? It doesn't suggest that they're totally mischaracterizing it. It is a Rorschach test. It's an inkblot test. But if it's an inkblot test and a Rorschach test, they and their people and the people they represent in the world are using, are still grasping onto every piece of evidence they can have to say that the reopening is too fast. And they have an outsized impact on Democratic senators, Democratic legislators, and the administration. Remember, they don't have this skepticism about the mainstream media and its characterizations of stuff that we do. They're all part of the same team. They're married to half the people at ABC News, married to half the people in the Biden White House. Most of them live in Greenwich, Connecticut, and they don't have any influence over, uh, over Connecticut for some reason. Well, I don't know what you... Anyway, you're... Look, I'm happy to hear that you think this is good news. I was, as I said, I was in a bad mood, but I'm saying like, uh, you know, we have a circumstance in which four months ago we had 200,000 people a day testing positive for the virus. And yesterday or something like that, it was under 40,000, right? Uh, Hospitalizations are down by like 75% across the country. 
and we have people close to Biden saying things like, I will never go into a restaurant until 2022. This guy, Dr. Osterholm, right? Or, I mean, so I look at this. Yeah, go ahead. Of, of Dr. Fauci saying that we're we're probably headed for another spike. Well, and and you know that they're worried because they're already starting to starting to rebrand what you can even call a public health crisis, right? So I sent you guys the the, the piece in the New York Times of the weekend that's like racism is our public health crisis, but it's using COVID as the springboard and the argument for why racism should be federally declared a public health crisis akin well, to a pandemic. Well, this is like the Marshall Plan. Gambit, you know, this is like we need a Marshall Plan for the inner city. We need a Marshall Plan for the border. We need a Marshall Plan for X, Y, and Z. This is now going to be like we need to declare the thing that I'm unhappy about a public health emergency. Like whatever it is, pick whatever whatever thing that is supposed to be. Uh, this, yes, but this as, crosses but as all we, lot. yes, but as we know, declaring something a public health crisis or an emergency gives a lot of power to a lot of people who we don't want to see wielding power or who have in this previous public health crisis abused it rather right, dramatically. Right, right. So you mentioned Osterholm, who was on Meet the Press this afternoon or yesterday morning, rather, and um, we all saw that quote because that was the quote that made the rounds. Um, where he was saying, listen, I'm not going to, I, even if you're vaccinated, I wouldn't be in a, a, a crowded restaurant, which is one of those tear your hair out things. But also on that, and you have to go, you know, we have a bias that seeks out this sort of stuff too, that drives us nuts. Because he also said, if we just tell people that they have to stay cocooned, that they're going to stay in their homes, that they've got to continue to wear masks, even though they're fully vaccinated, no one is going to do that. They're going to disregard public health recommendations and we have to get real. So he, he he sort of invalidated his own message. They're sending out the same contradictory message. In the same breath, they're contradicting themselves. So they don't even know what they have to say. So and and much, we have a tendency to gravitate towards the sort of stuff I think that drives us crazy. Right. Well, so much. I think one of the things that has been revealed here, which is very interesting and has long-range implications, are, you know, what do we know about what they teach at public health schools? Or what do we know what they teach if you get a PhD, not as a, not as a scientist, but as whatever? Um, uh, what, do we, what do we know about it? And I think there is way more of this, people are idiots and stupid, and we have to scare them into doing things. And we know this because the sorts of things that have now become accepted second nature, like the like that secondhand smoke is as uh, carcinogenic as smoking yourself are transparently untrue. But the larger virtue of proposing this in order to break the back of Americans and their addiction to cigarettes was deemed so important that every piece of every piece of circumstantial evidence that could be adduced to prove this was accepted and any argument against it was considered a an act of corruption that meant that you were in the pockets of the tobacco companies. That's like 30 years ago or 20 years ago, whatever it was, 25 years ago. Now, I'm just saying that we're, we're in a place where this now affected everybody in the country equally and Fauci's bias is toward this notion that if we let up and relent – these idiots are all going to make everybody sick again. So we better scare the crap out of them so that they'll behave until, you know, because look, those idiots in Texas, they're doing whatever the hell they want to do. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, and, and uh, I understand the impulse and so many people I know kind of share the impulse, particularly if they're highly educated, you know, they went to the top 25 or 30 colleges in the United States and their general perception of the people they don't know who live in flyover country is that they're a bunch of idiots and boobs, even if they agree with you, by the way. So sometimes you're sympathetic to their idiocy and boobery, like African-Americans don't want to get vaccinated, but we have to understand that. That's that you have to understand as a as a you know, residue of Jim Crow and the Tuskegee experiments and all of that. You know, some white redneck out there saying, I don't want to wear a mask and who the hell are you? He's just a QAnon, you know, evil person who should get Corona and drop dead for his terrible behavior. But no matter how you slice it, 
the impulse in relation to both is condescending and, you know, and it's elitist in the worst sense because I have nothing against elitism in cultural terms and all sorts. I have to say, like, we work at a small highbrow magazine with a small readership that presumably is interested in things that most people are not interested in. And we think they're more important than most of the things that people are interested in. That said, uh, you know, politically, we live in a self-governing society and this notion that we're, that, you know, 90% of the people in the country are, you know, uh, are cattle who need to be led is fundamentally authoritarian, totalitarian thinking uh, of the worst sort. And you know what is not thinking of the worst sort? Uh, you will find thinking of the best sort in Mark Gerson's book, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life, his book-length study of the Haggadah, the guide, manual, uh, prayer book, and uh, worship uh, instruction instrument of the Passover Seder. Uh, I've been telling you about this all month. We've got Passover coming at the end of March, and uh, there it, it's just so rich. Um, the, the, the Seder is, uh, represents a requirement, a historical requirement, uh, over time to tell the story of the Exodus from Egypt so that Jews, and by the way, anybody who really believes themselves to be part of this grand tradition, including every Christian and every Muslim um, on earth, that uh, that we are to experience the holiday as if we were the ones coming forth out of Egypt. That is the prescription that uh, dominates the, the, the Seder, which is a time for discussion, debate, uh analysis, uh, historical example, and uh, thoroughgoing study. And uh, one of the things you do if you go to a Seder often is prepare materials of interest so that at the 50, in the 15 different sections of the Seder, uh, at each point, something interesting can be said that maybe wasn't said the previous year and that can illuminate people. And that is what Mark does in this book on every page. The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life by Mark Gerson. Buy it today. If you go to a Seder, if you don't go to a Seder, you're going to learn a lot if you are interested in the miracle, the miraculous historical identity and continuance of the Jewish people. There is a lot in this book that will help you understand why we have survived while every other ancient tribe that we know of has practically uh, died away. What is this story? What is the miracle of Judaism? There is something about the fact that we gather every year uh, and tell this story that binds us to our past and leads us into the future. So that's the telling by Mark Gerson. Buy it today. Um, So speaking of elites, Christine, uh, The, uh, I'm forcing this topic on you guys. I'm the, sorry. <laughs> the the hallmark marriage of our time, right? The the uh, biracial American Canadian actress uh, who meets and marries the prince uh, in a you know in a uh, up to updated version of Grace Kelly and Prince Rainier of Monaco. Uh, so Megan and. Uh, Megan and Harry went uh, sat with Oprah last night to talk about the horrors of their existence that forced them to leave the system, as Harry called it, and go out on their own as the Sussexes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that was actually far too generous. I mean, I look. I'm very grateful to have been born in, in a, into a country that's a constitutional republic. But I, and I definitely will not claim to speak for all Americans. But I feel like I, I didn't watch the whole thing. It was too saccharine and stomach churning to watch. I, I saw some of it and then watched some clips later. The idea that that uh, I, I feel like Americans owe both the citizens of the UK and every Commonwealth country an apology for foisting this, you know, zealous, clearly narcissistic uh, actress onto the British royal family, uh, and and to see a member of the British royal family complain about how at, at the age of almost forty, his daddy cut off his allowance, sitting in you know they have a palatial multi million dollar mansion. She was wearing a you know. $3,000 dress. I mean, these people are, to me, the epitome of a kind of new woke aristocracy that has that embraces all of the virtues, misinterpretations um, of, of our woke era. 
and the elite disdain for others. I mean, these are people who fly around in private jets and then lecture the rest of us on our carbon footprint. Um, they they didn't need a, 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 a sit down with Oprah Winfrey. They need like a special page in the DSM-5. I mean, this is not an acceptable way to talk to anyone in the way that, you know, on a on a kind of personal level, the way that they talked about this man's family in public is is horrific. And I don't have any brief for the monarchy. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting, but as, as many Americans do, but I mean, this was clearly a lot of uh, mistruths and, you know, kind of race mongering, racism charges that then when they were pressed on who said these terrible things to them, oh, we couldn't possibly say, I mean, it was, it was an, uh, it was a performance of perfect woke virtue signaling. And in that sense, I found it kind of despicable, actually. <laughs> so there, I, I I'm clearly have a very strong reaction. But, uh, you know, then again, it, it's also entertainment. So we should treat it like a, a rea- the reality television show that it obviously is. Uh, so the monarchy was saved from disaster in 1936 when, um, when uh, King Edward VIII abdicated his throne for the woman he loved wallace simpson um a d- american divorcee so he couldn't marry her and so he he gave up the and it was sort of saved because um he was an awful disgusting person and so was she uh nazi sympathizers uh racists anti-semites horrible and his brother who ascended to the throne after his abdication turned out to be a pretty noble uh uh, if you needed somebody to help lead Britain through World War II, who was not the political leader, Churchill, um, he did a pretty good job and, uh, you know, was a was a sort of a harbinger, a sort of representative of self-sacrifice and stiff upper lip and, you know, keep calm and carry on and all of that, and followed in that train by his daughter, who then became queen, obviously, in 1952, has now been, you know, queen for uh, 211 years and uh, and is uh, seems to be a very dignified, sober, judicious, and careful uh, person. None of which can be said about any of her children, all of whom seem to be repellent and repulsive. Um, and I'll defend Anne. Anne okay, Anne, Anne, Anne is kind fair. of awesome. Okay, Anne I love Anne. Okay, but <laughs> Margaret, Andrew, and Charles, in various different ways, are gross. And and now Harry is gross, and I don't know what you know. I don't know what the other kids are like or not like, but um, you know, it's like so. What good? You know, fine. Keep the system going. It's not my country. You can do whatever you want. You can have a monarchy. You can have them so the people have a good. Th- you know, they can see the you know changing of the guard in St James Park at Buckingham Palace, and it's all very nice and fun and. And you can walk the, you know, you can walk the maze at Windsor Castle, and they can go off wherever they want to go. But this is a preposterous institution that is doing more damage to the country that it's supposedly, you know, the ceremonious ceremonial head of than it is doing at any benefit. Well, they look. They have a whole role um, that the that the British public has for a very long time accepted as a by paying for it, it with their tax revenue. Um, of you know, they have a charitable. They they promote certain charities. They have you know pet projects that they bring a lot of attention to, and th- and that works for them. I mean, I think what's kind of offensive about this the sort of Harry and Meghan show is that. They're bringing um, the prestige of the institution. They need it to survive because they've tried to cash in on it multiple times. They constantly refer to themselves by their titles, despite the fact that they now live in a country that doesn't recognize them. And they have they've tried to trade on the prestige and the and the duty, which is which is I think your description of the queen that was the one word that was missing. Missing her sense of duty has been really remarkable. The stoicism, the kind of virtues that people associate with the royal family, even if every single particular member doesn't always live up to them is important. And by contrast, you have, you know, these almost middle aged, you know, woke millennial types <laughs> griping about their allowance and their titles. And it's it, that's what strikes me as being kind of preposterous. And I don't want Americans to buy it for a minute. I mean, it's ridiculous. They, they're celebrities, they want to be celebrities, they want to cash in on, a, a, on an institution that however you feel about it, at least tries to stand for something in its own country. And I, I don't like that part of it. I think it's kind of cheap. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I have to say, and this, I've sort of shocked myself with this. Um, I've become much more sympathetic to the royals than I used to. I mean, to the institution than I used to be, um, uh, especially now that you see uh, in the U.S. Um, 
sort of the importance of a cohesive national myth uh, and what happens when that falls apart. Uh, so uh, it's uh, undoubtedly there are many absurd, mostly absurd things about it, but um, uh, I'm, I'm confident that whatever would replace it would be worse. Fair enough. Um, and, you know, uh, in terms of uh, things replacing things that would uh, would make them worse, we were talking about whether or not the coronavirus bill bringing big government back roaring uh, as it has not been roaring since uh, since the end of the Cold War. Um, uh, and if I, I am going to turn for daily advice on what this is going to mean to our economy to our friends at the Bonson group and the, and the, and the newsletters that they publish, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com to give me a sense of how this bill, like the image of the elephant passing through the snake in the little print, the beginning of the little prince, like how America is going to digest and, and, and deal with this um, uh, mammoth, thing that we have just stuck down our gullets um and and see whether or not we can we can survive it the bonson group two and a half billion dollars under management 27 uh uh financial uh management professionals uh including uh former uh, head of the council of economic advisors larry kudlow and david bonson who runs the bonson group um uh, apply their rigorous fact-based uh, and macroeconomic uh, talents to the interplay of markets and policy uh, in a way that is uh, illuminating daily at the dctoday.com and weekly at dividendcafe.com. So please sample the wares and the goods of the Bonson Group, particularly if you are considering someone to manage your money, um, if you are uh, in that kind of category, because uh, you are you know that this is an industry where people are not very serious and not very committed and and uh, that is not the case with the Bonson group which is an antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry so and we thank them for sponsoring the commentary podcast all right where do we go from here uh so um guess who's in trouble one word, Abe, who's in trouble? That would be Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo. Sounds like FOMO. Yeah, no. <laughs> so we now literally have the uh, Democratic political class in, in New York State, uh, the head of the assembly uh, calling on him to resign, having established the precept that only one more woman needed to come forward to say that he had harassed her. Uh, and then one more woman came forward. So uh, Andrea Cousins had to say that Cuomo should resign. And then um, uh, Carl Heastie, who's the head of the state Senate, issued this statement saying he really needed to consider doing something permanent about his own permanency. He did not, I think, I don't think the word resign appeared in his bizarre statement. But uh, we now have um, four or five mayoral candidates in New York City uh, calling on him to resign. And uh, he, of course, said he would never resign and comically said that that would be, that would be to turn back, you know, the wishes of the voters who uh, elected him, which is funny because he said that Eric Schneiderman, uh, the attorney general of the state, should resign uh, when he got into a sex scandal. And guess what? Eric Schneiderman was also elected by the people and he didn't somehow think that this would somehow be uh, a perversion of the will of the electorate to have Eric Schneiderman resign. So I have to say that I brought this to the show, the Andrea Stewart Cousins thing, the state Senate majority leader who said, you know, if there's a fourth woman, I'm going to say he's going to resign. I thought she would move the goalposts because that's exceedingly stupid. Um, but she didn't. She held firm to her own uh, conditions there. So I guess you got to give her credit for being consistent. But it also illustrates how asinine it is to make this a condition of aggregate accusations and not the actual incidents that are being alleged. Uh -huh. The new allegation is from a woman named Annalise who said the governor questioned, asked her intimate questions about her life and kissed her on the hand. And said, and called her pretty, sweetheart. And called her sweetheart. 
Now that we don't know how she took that or he took that or what his intentions were, the commonality of the English language and nonverbal cues all matter a lot in this sort of situation. Nevertheless, it's on its face a little less serious than some of the other allegations. How dare you say that, Noah? She had to do a year of therapy to deal with the fact that he called her sweetheart. That's what she said. Okay. I'm making fun well, of her because what's interesting here is when these pylons I'm happen, making fun of, of, of Miss Cousins yeah. because she, she's right. the one who deserves right. it. Um, and the entire movement that has determined that it's a, it's a question of, of volume. But by the way... Rather than the actual <laughs> merits of the allegations. But isn't that, isn't that a, a perfect echo of Gloria Steinem's one grope rule with Clinton? Right? I oh, mean, yeah, one was okay. One free grope? Yeah. Yeah. Right. One free grope. That's right. I had forgot about that. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. That's, well, and look, I mean, Noah's right that that um, the pernicious thing about setting the standard is uh, we got to make it a dirty dozen before we act on this predator is that is that each instance isn't often as egregious as the other. I mean, the one, you know, the, the, the young woman who last week sat down and told her story, you know, who had, she was an assault survivor and, and how he treated her, that was terrifying and horrible to listen to. Somebody um, having an interaction, even with someone who is in a position of power you over you in the workplace that comes off wrong, that's where, like, let's have a, you know, the more you know, let's have a learning moment here, a teachable moment where you can say, you know, that made me uncomfortable and here's why. And then usually if the person is even halfway decent or or understands that their job might be at risk if they're not, backs off. We've all had, I've had moments like that with people I've worked with where I'm like, you know, I didn't really think that's that, that funny. And nine times out of 10, they'll be like, oh, sorry, my bad. Like I misunderstood. But this this instance is not enough to kind of take him over the finish line. It's the fact that they're they're so clearly torturing themselves not to hold him accountable that that's the notable thing here. And, well, they, and that's been the case with COVID. That's and and it's a proxy for what the real substantive allegation against Andrew Cuomo's governance is, which is that he presided over the covering up of the maltreatment and eventual deaths of ten thousand old people. They can't actually say anything about this. So this is a proxy fight for what they should be having an issue over, which is a maladministration of the worst possible sort. Well, because and we because, shouldn't overlook because, the fact that they're all being lied. Because once they say it, this is what's interesting. They decided not to say it because once once they say this is terrible, they really haven't they had no avenue other than he is morally unfit to remain as the governor of this state, right? That, that There's n- nowhere to go. Like 10,000 people, he sent people back to nursing homes and an untold number of people died as a result of them being sent back to nursing homes. We don't even know what the number is. It cannot be zero. We And it could be 5,000. We have just no idea, right? Once you say that, you've got nowhere to go. So they didn't say it in the, in the immediate aftermath of Tish James's report, which opened the floodgates, because they didn't know what to do and they were still scared of him. And then suddenly this other thing comes out of the woodwork about his uh, misbehavior toward women. And that's for some reason, because they didn't talk about, what are they going to do three weeks later? Say, you know what? It's really the nursing homes. It's really the nursing homes. Well, the Ralph Northam thing gives him a way out. I mean, that's the model that how you escape, uh, you know, uh, consequences for your actions is you really just ride it out and eventually it goes away. That's really the model of every, any, any woke mob that comes after you. you have about 72 hours of nightmare. And if you can outlive the 72 hours, you're pretty much in the clear. Um, this is going to last a little bit longer for him, but the real substantive allegation against him is the nursing home stuff. The sexual harassment allegations can be outlived because people have outlived them. Yes, yeah, see, Justin Fairfax also. Justin Fair, yeah. That's who I was thinking Lieutenant of. Governor yes. of Virginia, yeah. That can be, those are survivable. So if you do not establish maladministration as the what should actually undo your career, well, yeah, because uh, personal conduct is, is survivable. But also misconduct. Because he's not really in trouble as long as he's the one deciding if, if he stays in office or not. You know, because uh, he's not going and he's never going anywhere on his own. Uh, he's never going to decide to do that. Um, but but it is the it is the misadministration of the crisis that would um, could but could potentially um, take that decision out of his hands. It's it's not it's not right. the conduct. Well, I mean, there are two things that could happen. One of which is that the, which is that this will this will uh, relent. He's not going to quit over it. But that in May or June or something like that, there'll be another blow 
uh, on the nursing homes thing uh, that that he will not be able to survive, whatever that means. The other is that you combine the two together and his fourth term, running for a fourth term in 2022 will be out of the cards. Right. Uh, so he will end his term with three. It's always a mistake to run for four anyway. His father lost that way. It's not not a good. It's not a, a good way to to go about it. Um, and and but in any case, the, those are the two possibilities. Uh, let me quickly talk to you about how social media and big tech are trying to curb our rights and freedoms by attempting to deplatform de- speech they don't agree with. Look, you can just deactivate all your social media accounts, but that would be giving the left just what they wanted in the first place. So instead of letting big tech sites try to control your speech, why not revoke their right to use your data? That's why I choose to protect my online data by using ExpressVPN. When you use it, you anonymize much of your online activity by hiding your IP address, which makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. And the ExpressVPN app couldn't be easier to set up. You just tap one button on your phone and computer and you're protected. It's finally time to say no to censorship and take back your online privacy with the VPN I trust at expressvpn.com slash commentary. By visiting my link, you'll get that extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash commentary, expressvpn.com slash commentary to protect your data today. I just want to say one thing before we go, which is that speaking of royals and royalty, uh, this weekend uh, on Amazon Prime, uh, Coming to America, the sequel to the uh, African prince comes to Queens and finds his bride story, which is a weird uh, analog to the to the uh, Meghan and Harry story uh, from 1988, uh, was released uh, on Netflix. Uh, this is a movie much beloved of people. I wasn't so crazy about it, but it did have these explosively funny moments and this interesting notion of this um uh, you know protected guy from this like mythical kingdom coming to queens in the 1980s in the middle of crime and crack and drug dealers and you know uh and then also this kind of very amusing and te- interesting por- portrait of sort of middle class black life in new york city uh and all these bit parts that uh, eddie murphy and arsenio hall played as you know old Jews, old barbers, Rick James uh, imitators, and various other, just a lot of that was really delightful. So coming to America is awful. It is awful. It is yeah, it's pretty bad. bad, Christine. <laughs> oh, I, I, I watched it uh, with my kids this weekend and they became so bored. They started playing online chess with each other during the movie. You know, so when 14 year olds do that in front of a comedy that's targeted to like the family. Yeah, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. It missed all the kind of uh, subversive mockery of one's own culture that made the first one so great actually. Yeah, I, I think it was awful in, in important ways um, because it was totally lifeless. Um, and I, I think it it shows that when you take a project from a uh, long pre-pre-pre-woke uh, age um, and try to translate it into the current climate, it comes out completely lifeless, completely dead. Um, and so it's yeah. it's depressing. Yeah, Although I will say there was a hilarious line where Eddie Murphy's playing the old Jewish guy at the barbershop and he says, oh, there's Nazis everywhere, but now they dress like the geek squad. That yeah, was actually yeah, the kind geek of funny. Squad, I mean, there yeah. were, there were yeah, some one-offs here and yeah. there. No, no. Like in, in two hours, there were like three good lines and 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 Wesley Snipes, who is a very interesting uh, person speaking of uh, extremists who uh, – could be made fun of in the coffee shop in the in the barber shop, right? Because Wesley Snipes doesn't believe in U.S. currency and didn't believe he had to pay taxes, and is kind of like from the Q. It was QAnon before QAnon was QAnon. Is nonetheless having this a uh, late and after prison and everything late career revival in these two Eddie Murphy movies and Dolomite is my name and this and he's fantastic in both and that is really the only thing. But uh, so much. So much for the rebooting. Like, you know, this basically was a bizarre remake of Coming to America. That's the odd thing is it sort of like had the same beats, except that they were in the fake country, which, of course, is not interesting. There's nothing interesting about the fake country, whereas Queens, in you know, the idea that you would go to Queens because it sounds like a royal place, and there you are in Queens, and if you, most of you, we're never in Queens in the 1980s, but uh, most of Queens was not 
that nice in the 1980s. Um, uh, and uh, and so, you know, that intersection of, you know, the, the myth, myth meets reality. This is sort of like, here, you're from Queens. Come here and live in a mythical country for a while and see if that's funny. And it's not. Apparently, though, what we learn about these mythical African countries is that everybody does production numbers. People show up and they do dances in front of each other. And how that's not a little minstrelly, I, I don't really understand. Here, here's the leader of the following, here's the leader of the other country. They're going to come in and they're going to do a big production number. What? Weird. Very weird. So with that, we will, I hope we've saved you two hours of agony. Uh, and uh, even though this has been, uh, maybe listening to us today has been an hour of agony. So that's a trade-off. We saved you an hour by giving you, saved you two hours by giving you an hour of agony. Uh, if you want to, uh, if you want to repeat the agony, please return tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.